Hey folks, Randy Newberg here with another episode of Leopold's Hunt Talk Radio. Today I have a great guest. He's been on our podcast many times before. Uh, he's always one of those guests that people ask for. Hey, when are you going to have Shane Mahoney back on? And Shane and I run in a lot of the same circles, involved in a lot of the same organizations. Uh, and we... <laughs> It just seems like even though as much as we see each other, it's always a struggle to find time to do a podcast because both of us are so busy. But today here in Reno at the Wild Sheep Foundation uh, annual sheep show, Shane saw me and said, hey, let's try to do a podcast. Last time we didn't get a chance to, to cover it all. Um, so uh, that's who's going to be with us today. He gave a and uh, I guess an address, an abbreviated address. He was actually the MC, which he's normally not an MC. Normally, Shane is a keynote speaker. Uh, but in his MC, he gave some bits and pieces of some new studies that are out there about how people view animals, uh, wild things, uh, about how society is uh, viewing uh their role with hunting uh, with animals. And then also it, Shane talks uh, a lot about, and this is because of his science background, uh, about how similar just in so many ways humans and and other animals are in, in how we do things. And uh, sometimes people look at him like, man, you, you've lost your mind. Uh, I always look at him and say, I never thought of it that way. So, uh, once I uh, let you know who makes this podcast possible, Shane is going to uh, join me here on the on the mics. Uh, Want to thank Leupold for making this possible. Leupold Optics. Go to Leupold.com. Check out their great optics. Uh, I'm going to be hanging out with them the SHOT Show down here in Vegas here in a couple weeks. Uh, and learning all the new stuff that's coming out for 2020 and uh hope you'll you'll support them because they surely support us uh we have onyx maps um and <laughs> just every time i i talk about them being part of the podcast i try to figure out how could i express how critical that is to how we hunt in the field and i never come up with a way that does it justice so just understand that it's the old don't leave home without it uh, mapping platform. Go to onyxmaps.com, buy any of their app products, and use promo code RANDY, R-A-N-D-Y, to save 20%. Yeah, there you go. You're going to hear a lot of promo code RANDY. Uh, our idea is we want our listeners and our viewers to save money. And the way you can save money is by using promo code RANDY. And then we have Go Hunt application seasons here and you'll hear us talk about their insider um it's it's how you can go find your tag you can find these overlooked areas you can find trends and you can manipulate the database out in their insider service to identify things that you know what that might increase my odds by five percent which when a tag is only 10% draw odds and you can find ways to change things and and find some that maybe uh, by picking that other tag or that other hunt code, you increase your odds to 15% over time, that pays a big difference, big 
pays a big dividend. Uh, and then you, you look at their strategy articles, they have unit analysis for all the Western states, and not just the limited entry ones. They have all of the stuff related to over-the-counter, a lot of cow tags and antlerless tags. But the strategy articles that Trail and, and Brady put together are that just that is worth the subscription. Then you throw on the best draw odds and everything else. It's just a remarkable service. So I want you to, to use promo code Randy when you sign up for the Insider for two reasons. One, you're going to get $50 back of store credit to spend in their gear shop. And if you go out there and snoop around, it's a super, super high quality gear shop. And then everybody who used promo code Randy to sign up for the Insider is going to get their name in a drawing for a Wyoming commissioner's tag. Yeah, we're going out, me and Go Hunt, we're going to go get one of these commissioner tags this winter and this spring. And one of you from July 1 of 2019 to June 30, 2020, one of you are going to be awarded that commissioner's tag. Uh, you can redeem it for any hunt code for elk, deer, or antelope. And uh, you'll have a really, really good hunt. A lot of you have already signed up and probably didn't even know you were in the drawing. But anyhow, uh, Go Hunt is going to be keeping the database of names and drawing the names, and we'll announce it sometime in early July. So there's two ways you can save money at Go Hunt on the Insider, uh, or, well, not save money, but two benefits to you. When you go out to GoHunt.com, sign up for the Insider News promo code Randy, R-A-N-D-Y. And as a little whisper, if ever you're shopping in their gear shop and you use promo code Randy, you get 10% off. But you can't use that in conjunction with your store credit. But I don't know. I wonder why I haven't been telling more people that. Yeah. GoHunt has a great gear shop, 10% off when you use promo code Randy at checkout. So anyhow, uh... Shane and I are here, and we're going to try touch on some of these topics. Um, you never know where it's going to go. Uh, Shane's got always has some amazing perspectives because he travels so much. He talks to people in other countries across Asia, Europe, Africa. He's involved in so many projects related to conservation, not just from the hunting standpoint, but conservation of non-game species, of endangered species, of fish, of... You name it, he's probably being asked to participate in some sort of, of uh, council or, or panel or policy uh, on those kind of things. So to have him here on our podcast is uh, truly a gift, and I'm thankful for him to be here. I'm thankful that all of you are here. So here we go. Well, folks, I told you we were going to have one of our most requested guests with us today. Uh, we are at the Wild Sheep Show, Wild Sheep Foundation Convention in Reno. Shane Mahoney is here with me. And uh, he, he gave just a very short uh, presentation. Uh, you were the MC the other night of the I conservation. Was. That's a new role. First time ever. Yeah. Well, you did a hell of a job. <laughs> Thank and you. Uh, it, the audience... Well, you just have this, uh, your your presentation, Shane, is so remarkable that when you start talking, the audience just stops talking. And it's, you, 
you and you even how long you said I'm only I'm only going to do this for five minutes, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> which, which is pretty short for a Shane presentation. Yeah. But you touched on some really important things, and I yeah. want to get right into them because both you and I today have cram schedules. Yes, we do. And uh, you were talking about uh, some information that's become available available about how people view wildlife. Yes. And I think we as hunters have a tendency to feel that we're on this little island and no one else sees wild things in wild places the way we do. Yeah, we see them slightly different. Yeah. Maybe 5% different, but when you look at the other 95%, yeah. we probably look at it very similar yes. to how other people do. And, and you were touching on some of that, and I was thinking, dang it, I wish Shane wouldn't have said only five minutes. I want to hear the rest of this. So, <laughs> Well, it's a, it's a huge issue, uh, and it's a very interesting one because it goes at the, really to the heart of what, what we are as humans and, of course, what we are as animals at the same time. Um, more and more research is coming out, of course, which is shedding light on the sentience, the, the feeling side, and also the sapience or the thinking side of, of other species, of mm -hmm. other animals. And um, this in and of itself is, uh, over time, of course, is having an impact on the way the broad public mind and individuals within the public uh, perceive animals. Yeah. And that's understandable. Right. When you, when you know that an animal is capable of forethought and you know that an animal is capable of strategy and you know that an animal is capable of love... Uh, that uh, that affection uh, can be real both within its own species and between it and other species in some cases. You know, when you see these things, um, we are reminded inadvertently, uh, we sort of say, oh, that's so human. But we're getting to a stage where people are realizing that's really not quite the way to see it. What it is, is, oh, we all share that. Yeah. And there's a really important distinction there, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so we are seeing all around the world uh, a tendency for people, some people call it anthropomorphism, you know, people are talking about animals as though they were human. I don't quite think of it in the same way. I think what we're suddenly beginning to realize more and more is that we are all the same in a very true sense. You know, when Darwin came out with his first ideas about evolution, and then when we developed the capacity to understand genetics, you know, when Watson and Crick figured out the double helix, you know, how the DNA works in the body, and then when we developed mechanisms for testing it, and you realize that, you know, 98.6% of our DNA we share with chimpanzees, for example, identical, <laughs> right? You know, yeah. uh, then, then you have to sort of figure, well, you know, did that 1.6%, how much change does that really make? Does that really make us completely separate from the rest of the animal kingdom because we have that small amount of difference? Um, and I think this feeling uh, that's rising in people today, and some new work has just come out uh, surveying people in the United States about how they view animals and how they think about them. And it's very clear that even in this country and in all other countries, that more and more people are in fact starting to think of animals more as like ourselves. And so a lot of people think that, you know, these kinds of ideas uh, stem from a far 
sort of uh, limited extreme view of the world, like let's say animal rights or yeah. something of this nature. But the truth of the matter is that the animal rights movement is simply now must be seen as just an extreme fringe of a particular uh, development value system in society, which is seeing more and more and more people in urban centers, in rural centers, people who hunt, people who don't hunt, all people are starting to develop a, 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 a change in the way they perceive the other animals on this planet. And it is going to create, Randy, a, an incredibly interesting, uh, frustrating at times <laughs> debate, depending on where you are yeah. in, in this spectrum. Um, my own views of this, of course, are well known. I do not see any difference between us and them, and I haven't for a very long time. Right. I I started my university days, you know, deeply in love with animals, of course, but I still had in my head the notion of difference. But over many years of being with them, and also having animals of my own, as we all have had, our right. dogs or sheep or whatever, yep. chickens... Um, I really did come to my own conclusion very early in my university days that there was no difference. I mean, there's a difference in the sense that a zebra is different from a horse, of course. You know, there is right. this, that. But in terms of what they are capable of, in terms of how they feel, uh, in terms of why we should feel and care for them, um, my basic principles on that were founded long ago. Uh, and, of course, that often generates the interesting question from people, then, well, how can you possibly oh, hunt? Right, or how can you eat them? Yeah. Yeah, that, that uh, as you're saying that, my mind is rolling through this conundrum of, yeah, I, I have this strong feeling towards animals. I love watching them. I love knowing their presence is here. But as that type of information comes available studies are there to show some of this it, it makes the gravity of taking that animal for your food even a more uh difficult reconciliation it does if, if you want to call it that way it also on the flip side of that to make sure there is accommodation and space and habitat in place and value to them mm -hmm. it creates more at least for me, feeling of responsibility mm -hmm. to that cause. Yeah. I think all of those things are true. And every human being, of course, is, uh, is unique. Mm -hmm. And every human being will fall somewhere along those continuums, but they won't all be in the same space. What is happening, however, collectively, is that as the decades pass, more and more uh, people are starting to really feel for animals in a very, if I could say, human way, mm -hmm. you know? And um, yet we have um, a reality before us. And the reality before us is that uh, every being, every living thing uh, on this planet both takes and gives. Um, you know, we, we all demand water and air and soil for crops and animals to consume, and they in their turn require the same kinds of things from the planet. Mm -hmm. We really are, without having to get too 
kind of uh, philosophical about it, I suppose. We, we know deep down, and more and more we are proving through science, that we are all deeply, deeply connected. And you simply cannot break bonds anywhere without weakening the entire structure that we rely on. <laughs> and uh, we're, 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 we're pressing it, you know, with some of the ridiculous things we're doing to the planet, but, uh, mm-hmm. but uh, hopefully not to the point that it can't be repaired. Yeah. Well, the reason that I think our audience loves to hear your perspective, Shane, and I know I do, is you get to travel so much. You get to interact with people who... The, the culture of how wildlife is viewed in the United States, even among our populations, whether it's rural, suburban, urban, we have, and not to overly generalize, but there are probably some differences of mm-hmm. just because of how we see them or don't see them in our daily lives. Mm-hmm. So we have those distinctions in our populations in the United States. You get to go to these other countries and you live in Canada and you, you see so much more of how this bigger world views wildlife and its place in their systems and the, how they value it both uh, financially, but both intrinsically and, yes. and otherwise. So when you bring this stuff forward, I, I almost have to allocate a little bit of time after every podcast to say, all right, now Shane's kind of caused me to have to pivot my, my <laughs> view here. But this kind of stuff, when you started talking about it the other night, you didn't go into all the detail. But these views of uh, uh, the science is starting to show how both the social or psychological uh, vision or feeling that we have about wildlife is it's a reality that we have to accept and it's changing and it's it's never going to go back to the total utilitarian view of say maybe the 1920s no when it was just hand to mouth scratch out a living on the dirt and that if you want that view you're (laughs) you're going to be a disappointed person you are i mean i think you know the it's like a lot of things randy i mean the realities of our lives can suppress certain things in us. I mean, you go to war, you have to do things in war that you would yeah. never dream of doing otherwise. Yeah. Um, you're poor uh, and you don't have much food. You, you know, you, as you say, you scratch out a living in whichever way you can. And you're the other parts of you that, that, that are seeking freedom and seeking uh, seeking space to to thrive, you know, your more emotional and intellectual sides—they all have to be subverted, you know, to to that task. Mm-hmm. Well, um, I believe that this tendency on our part to be fascinated with animals, to to love to watch them, to 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 wonder what they're doing, to wonder what they're thinking—whether it's whether it's just our dog, or whether it's a an elk we see on a mountain, or or a brown bear we see on a coastline. You know, you can't watch them for very long without really wondering, you know, what is going on inside, you know. They're not just machines, you know, bumbling along across the landscape, you know. <laughs> you, know you know, they have a real strategy and they have a real purpose and they see things and they smell things and they, and they react to things. And we know they communicate with one another, of course. Mm-hmm. We, we, we know that full well. And they communicate with us in lots of ways, whether it's the alert stance or the alarm reaction or whatever it might be. And I, um, 
so I think from our very first days of existence as human beings, they were so much a part of our life. I mean, they were with us every all the time. We, we were afraid of some of them. We, we obviously hunted many of them. We, we learned from them. We, we listened to the cries of ravens or of other birds if we were in another part of the world that would give us warnings of things that were happening or might be happening, etc. We were always, in a sense, in communication with them. And the very early, you know, art, the parietal art, the cave art of Europe and places and the, and the jewelry and the other bone uh, art that was created, you know, there can be no doubt that this is not a new phenomenon. Mm -hmm. We have this within us. And, <laughs> and have for... Forever. Yeah. For absolutely forever we have had this in us. And uh, now, you know, over time... The world is changing in many, many, many ways, as it always does. And this broad social change in terms of our relationships, our, our reactions to, our desires for, uh, and our interest in animals, you know, we are now free for this expression to come out in a way. We couldn't afford, in a sense, to have these kinds of expressions. At no, we time, were, it right? was too difficult. We didn't have yeah. those luxuries financially or just in quality of life. To have that, we didn't that perspective. Although we, th that is certainly true, but of course, any of us who know people who raise animals, farmers, and so on, particularly at smaller scales, mm -hmm. um, going all the way back to our grandparents' days, you know, that was a very utilitarian time. But still, you know. They named their animals, didn't they? You know, <laughs> yeah. all the cows had a name. And, <laughs> yeah. You know, Bessie was arrogant, and, yeah. and Bobby was uh, just a sweetheart because he'd always come over and nuzzle your arm. I mean, we all have these stories, yeah. right, to relate, right? Yeah. So, but of course, we knew, and we still know to this day that those animals have to be raised for food for human beings. But it didn't, when you were close to them, it didn't prevent you from loving them, frankly. Mm -hmm. I mean, these people cared for their animals in a, in a very personal way. I mean, in some, some cases, they took risks and, and, and looked after them under circumstances where, uh, you know, as much as they would have done for, for a human being. Mm -hmm. And so what we're seeing now is that this is kind of going mainstream. And it's going to freight a lot of really good things because I think it's going to increase the pressure on people who do raise animals or who do own animals in any sense to to care for them properly to the very best you know giving them the very best care that it's absolutely possible to give them to treat them humanely to kill them humanely when it comes time to do that on the other hand it will elicit more reactions from a broader section of the public about activities that lead to animal death and of course hunting is going to be one of those that's going to be confronted by it yeah and i think the big change that's going to happen is we still have a lot of people in the hunting community who, when they hear criticisms of hunting, they, they, they are almost comforted by being able to blame that on some kind of special sector in society. Well, that's, you know, that's <laughs> those anti-hunters or the animal right. rights groups or something. But it's actually much more complicated and challenging than that. What's happening is there's a, there's a, there's a sea level rise of this sentiment that's cutting right across the public. And it's not just cutting across the public in the United States, it's cutting across the public in Canada and in Europe and around the world. 
And in some cases, it's throwing up very bizarre things. And I'll give you a small example. There are a number of cafes that have opened up in China, um, which um, advertise that you can come and have your coffee or sip your tea in, in that mm -hmm. culture more uh, with pandas. With, uh, pan with, li li with live pandas. pandas. That's what the advertisement says. <laughs> now, okay. this, is, this is a true story. Wow. I mean, this, uh, but when you get to the place, uh, you do see things that have the same coloration and patterns as pandas, but these are chows. These are the dogs that oh. have been groomed and dyed to look like pandas. And of course, the chows can be in the room with you and yeah. you can pet one of them and so on. So this is a, I, I raise this, I mean, it's obviously an extreme and most peculiar thing, but it's the kind of thing that emerges when a, when a societal movement is pushing in a certain direction and people are trying to find out how they can relate to that in their businesses or in their lives or whatever. But that simply would not have happened 50 years ago, right. would it? Or, no. you know, uh, I, I mean, <laughs> so, so we really are getting, um, forced to grapple with this part of ourselves is how I would put it. And as I said, the, the science, uh, around, animals now is teaching us of the many incredible things that they are capable of and, and knowing. I do believe um, that ultimately we want more people to care for animals, of course, yeah. all of us, and hunters desperately so want this to be the case. Right. And it is at least encouraging in that regard that there appears to be this rise of sensitivity uh, around animals. The challenge will be, of course, how much of this weighs in on the hunting world. Because when you have this broad societal shift, that is where the politics tend to really get complicated. Yeah. Special interest groups can be kind of dealt with in a way, if you know, mm -hmm. any, any, any special interest group. But when you have a broad change in society, like... Um, a value towards drinking and driving. You know, that was very, 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 very common. Right. But man, that's that's really considered... Bad. That's really... That's, that's a taboo you don't cross over, right. right? Yep. And one time people would wink and nod, you know. Mm -hmm. Boy, you know, he had some load in when he drove home last night or something like that. You yeah. don't hear that kind of comment anymore. No. Right? And that's a broader societal pressure that... It is. ...brought that over the last 30 years. Absolutely. Yeah. And these things are real. They happen. And when they happen, it's uh, it's like the health movement, you know, and the the interest looking at a something that's been very positive for the hunting world. You know, the whole health movement. I mean, that has just exploded. Healthy food, keeping yourself in good condition, um, you know, trying to avoid disease, you know, be preventative in what you do. Um, I mean, this is a real state of play in the broad public mind right now. But we can't point to a single incident or a single individual or something like that that started this but it's global now mm -hmm. it's everywhere and of course that reliance on healthy food is is a benefit to the hunting community in a very significant way in that we are able to lay claim legitimately to you know sourcing very healthy food for sure but, but the, you know, I, I get asked this question a lot just because of this, the reach of our platforms people ask me well 
where do you where do you see this hunter's uh, role in this problem or that problem and and I don't know I, I never have an answer other than I have a perspective and I think a perspective is different than an answer and that perspective is I look at the challenges hunting faced through my life I'm now 55 the challenges hunting faced when I was 14 were far less complicated than they are today and Every year of my life, it seems like the challenges of how we as hunters and the concept of hunting for your food fits into a changing society is a more difficult discussion, a more complex uh, debate, if you want to call it that, more complex in all aspects than it was last year, than it will be and next year will be even more complicated and so i try i throw that out there because i want people to realize that wishing that it was 1975 is does does the cause of hunting and wild things and wild places no good right we have to understand that we are in a different time where none of these are easy answers None of them are going to be solved simplistically. Hanging tags or labels on someone you disagree with, and whether it's in the political world or whether it's in the mm -hmm. philosophical world, does nothing to accomplish that. And forcing myself to think about it that way, that this is complicated, has really helped me kind of feel my way through, all right, how do I see these things? And I'm not saying the way I see it is mm -hmm. the right no, way, no. but... It, I guess it causes me less consternation, less worry as I have to think about it more. And when I think about it more, I think about the people and I try to put myself in their shoes. And most times I come to the conclusion, they like wild things. They like clean air. They like clean water. They, I, I'm on the same page with them about mm -hmm. nine out of ten times. It's absolutely so, true. We... Uh... And the hunting community is not alone in this. I mean, there's a tendency in human beings to always want to sort of um, uh, create the other. Yeah. You know? We need the, an the, enemy, the, a bad guy. There's or, the, yeah. They're yeah. the others. You yeah. Know, you know what I mean? And I think the hunting community has, um, you know, could have opened up a university on this and taught, taught, <laughs> taught courses. <you> know. <laughs> and, uh, you know, <laughs> and I think it's um, what's really starting to help in a way, is that um, I think one of the benefits of the aging demographics in the hunting world as a result of us not having the recruitment to hunting that we used to have mm -hmm. is that we are, of course, creating a, a, a community of mature, uh, older people who have a lot of experience not only in their hunting life but in life generally mm -hmm. and I do sense certainly in the last 15 to 20 years uh, that I find a lot more moderate voices than I used to find mm. and, uh, and and part of that is because it's made up of people who come to me and say Shane you know I, I just don't want to I love to hunt I've hunted all my life and I think it's a fantastic thing but I just want to go now. I don't want to kill them anymore. Mm. I have lots of hunters tell me this. Yeah. Uh, or it can be uh, just the fact that, uh, you know, uh, it, you know we're, we're, we're becoming better educated societies, generally speaking. Mm -hmm. And uh, over our lifetime, 
you know, the people who read and listen to podcasts like yours and so mm -hmm. forth. I mean, they're exposed to a great many more ideas. And I think when you are exposed to more ideas, it makes it much more difficult to, to place everything in, in two categories, <laughs> me and the rest of the world, yeah. right? Uh, so I think there's a phenomenon going on within the aging of the hunter society, the hunter community, that is actually you know, challenging more people to think about the realities out there. And to understand, therefore, that it cannot be that everybody will be supportive uh, of hunting, but it's also remarkable that so many people are, 80% mm -hmm. of the American public are, yeah. uh, but that also uh, people around the issue of hunting draw different lines. So some people will be totally opposed to somebody going maybe to Africa to shoot an elephant but they are totally supportive of their friend across the street who hunts his whitetail every year. Yep. And so it's not just the other. In other words, they're not anti-hunters. Those people, they may be against a specific kind of hunting activity, for example, right. and totally favor in favor of others. And I think the hope for hunting is that, you know, when I started to refer many years ago to try to bring back this term, the hunter-naturalist, which was common you know, centuries ago. It, it was. Right? That, right? That, yeah. that was kind of your first expectation as a hunter. You were a naturalist. Absolutely. And I started to use that term a lot in the 70s and 80s, uh, 90s, all the way up through, hoping that it would, it would gain a bit more traction, and others did too. Um, but now, you know, I really think we're coming to the stage where we want the, the, the hunter-philosopher out there we need the hunter-philosopher more than ever right now mm -hmm. who's able to talk about these complicated questions and do it in a way where it's clear that they, they love the discussion. They're not trying every moment to win an argument, yeah. right? Yeah. And I think this is what will bring people into the dialogue more. Uh, just as we're trying to do with you know this Wild Harvest Initiative, we want to build bridges with the fruit pickers, the berry pickers, the shed antler har harvesters, the medicinal plant harvesters, the mushroom harvesters, firewood people. You know, we want the maple syrup gatherers. You know, the idea of trying to find they're not all hunters. Some of them are, but the whole idea of trying to widen our community and bring more people into a discussion of why those systems need to be protected. Because if wildlife can't be there, then berries will likely not be there, and plants will not be there, and clean water will not be there, and so on and so forth. And I think if the hunting community could generate more individuals like you who, who talk about these things and who are willing to challenge their own thinking... Uh, at times, I think we can find this broad, moderate front in the hunting world that is really going to be responsible for saving this activity and this tradition and continuing to work for wildlife as we have for so long. I think the fringe elements, honestly, will simply wither away. I yeah. think they will disappear, and hopefully that will happen without too much damage being done to the movement overall. In the interim. Yeah. yeah. I, I wish I would have been carrying my podcast with me 
with my kit with me one time. I was on an airplane, and you get to travel so much, Shane. I can't imagine some of the interesting conversations. I don't you, speak you, anymore. You have. <laughs> yeah, this is back before I had a, a set of noise canceling headphones, and uh, I was doing something on my laptop, and the the guy next to me he just said, "You know, what are, what are you doing there?" I said, "Well, I produce hunting media," and uh, he's like, "Oh, that." kind of interesting and we got in this long conversation comes to find out i wish i would have got his business card he studies uh how humans form their opinions so mm -hmm. one of the the sciences of that and I, i'm not even smart enough to to know what what term he applied to his trade but i through this whole flight of about two and a half hours uh the takeaway i got from it is i asked him a, a couple questions and i it was kind of asking it from the standpoint of a hunter who feels that you know we're this we're in a minority uh, relative to the total population in the country, and uh, how it seemed like it was easy for me as a hunter or as a person in the minority uh, to want to grab hold of simple solutions. And I, I was telling him, I, I wish it was this way. I wish I mm -hmm. could just say, here's the fix. And he explained to me, and, and if anyone who's listening is is knowledgeable in these theories and this science, uh, hopefully they'll get a hold of me. But he talked about a lot of times, he said, you'll be in a debate with someone who's very intelligent. And intelligent people have a tendency to want to have an answer to everything. And so they compartmentalize things into very simple answers, mm -hmm. even though intuitively they know the the answer is way more complicated yes than what they've compartmentalized this yep. to yep. and but it gives them comfort that okay that's one more thing i don't have to worry about that i heard on the news today mm -hmm. and, and he's using these examples of what was going on at the current time i can't even remember what the examples were but my takeaway to that was if i try to compartmentalize every issue that faces hunting and faces conservation I'm kind of doing it for my own comfort of saying that problem is solved. Mm -hmm. And I'm in the process ignoring the much bigger, more complicated discussion. So when I find myself doing that, I, I can sense it because I'm kind of feeling a little comfortable. Mm -hmm. And I almost force myself to say, I got to be uncomfortable with this scenario yeah. and know that it's, it's an ongoing, changing, evolving issue that can't be simplified and compartmentalized by saying, oh, it's those people over there or it's this group over here. Mm -hmm. It's really way more complicated than that, than that. And the process of simplification is really our own fulfillment mm -hmm. of trying to bring our nervousness down. Yeah. And, and I wish I... I can't believe I didn't get the guy's card. He would have been such a great podcast guest yep. for talking about the perspective of how we as humans think of things if we are in the minority and we're trying to solve complex problems with simplified answers. It's very true. Um, and of course, it pertains to uh, all aspects of human discourse and dialogue, doesn't it? I yeah. mean, uh, we see this very much in politics today around the world. <laughs> yeah. right? uh, things are, you know, very easily compartmentalized into good and evil, or you know, right yeah. and wrong. And 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 then the other phenomenon I think that comes out of this of wanting to have an answer, it can be very uh, self-supportive. 
So even if the answer you come to that you compartmentalize is wrong, you become quite confident that it is right. Yeah. <laughs> and so then you promulgate this kind of uh, falsehood. Um, it's really interesting to... There are within the human being, for developmental reasons and others, there are processes, there are patterns. There are patterns to how we develop physically, there's patterns to how we develop mentally, and there, of course, there are patterns as to how we form opinions and why we hold the opinions that we do. But what is also, should never be forgotten, when we engage in a debate such as hunting, for example, here in the United States, or in the American West, or in the Canadian North, or wherever it might be, <clears throat> that we are not just fighting or discussing or debating or arguing with, you know, the person across from us who may hold a different point of view. Um, many people today are very quick to believe that a lot of the dialogue or opinions uh, out there are being generated through social media. Mm -hmm. Now, I do not believe this. I never have. And uh, I think it has an influence. But um, I give you an example. Uh, 10,000 years ago, uh, humans went through what we call the Neolithic Revolution, whereas when agriculture first started, mm -hmm. first started domesticating a few animals like the horse, for example, and the dog. And, uh, you know, found a few plants that we could help along or cultivate and then began to gather seeds and plant them. You know, we learned about this. Well, that took place in South America. That took place in North America. That took place in Europe. That took place in Africa. That took place in the Middle East. In other words, that phenomenon took place within a tiny window of time all around that time period of 10 to 11,000 years ago, and none of those people had any contact with one another. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the rise of cities is an exact same pattern. Hmm. It wasn't that someone said, hey, we've got a city over here, you know, you over there in North America, you should build one. No. There are patterns that take place in human behavior and human society and human politics that happen because of a whole innumerable changes, small changes that take place that ultimately force these great changes upon us. I believe personally that to bring us back to where we sort of started on this, I believe personally that we are entering an absolutely revolutionary time, and I use that term deliberately, absolutely revolutionary time in terms of human values and views of and toward other animals. I don't think that there has ever been a time where we are going to have so many people, billions of people, who actually have developed a radically different view of the natural world that it's just a place that we harvest from we have the right we have dominion we have domain we have we must you know we have to or whatever we really i really believe this is the most fundamental change that has taken place in human behavior towards the others on this planet 
the wild others on this planet that has ever occurred in human history. And oh. I don't think, Randy, it is going to stop at all. No. I think it is going to grow more and more and more. Some of it will be bizarre, like the chows made up to look <laughs> the, like, the, like, fake like panda. the fake pandas. <laughs> Some of it will be uh, pet, pet cemeteries or mm -hmm. things of that nature, which now are quite common, but one time yeah. that was considered, you know, complete yeah. whatever. Yeah. Um, and... Um, and some of it will be very good in the sense that I think much fairer treatment for all animals will take place under uh, many, many, many circumstances. And, uh, and I think the hunter, though, uh, I don't see this as necessarily uh, something that in and of itself is going to end hunting. Because I think along with that change in society, there are these other changes also taking place. The, these changes towards health and fitness and lifestyle and so on and so forth. And I think people will also come to the realization that sustainably utilizing nature is a way to ensure its conservation and bring benefits to people who need it at the same time. And that what we really ought to be doing is slowing down sort of aspects of the, the great industrial complex that produces so many poisons and so many things that we don't need and so many things that are harmful to the environment. Because I can assure you that these large, uh, large institutions in, in en energy and manufacturing, in, in those businesses and, and in all others, they have the ingenuity, the talent, the capacity to produce things that are much better and healthier for the environment than many of the things that they currently produce. For sure. There's no doubt about it whatsoever. Yeah. And uh, I think this rise that we're talking about in terms of values towards animals will make people also value more the natural systems that are out there. I believe that will come with it. And I think that overall is going to be of great benefit to, to humanity. And I think that the hunter community will be seen as a harvester, and we will never be able to start harvesting, Randy, the oceans, the crops, the, yeah. it can't be done. And it will really depend on what image does this new public have in their minds of the man or woman who harvests a living thing deliberately for their own consumption. And I think that story still has a long play if we do it in the right way. Oh, I, I agree 100%. I, the, just the anecdotal experiences I have, I, because of the visibility of our platforms, I get engaged in these discussions all the time, whether Absolutely. online or whether in person. And no matter where the difference of perspective comes from, I leave that discussion with a slightly wider view of, hey, you know, that person might have some validity to it. But I usually leave the discussion with some confidence that I've made a case that a lot of what I do when I go and hunt and I eat what I've harvested or the fish I've caught or whatever, and my advocacy for the landscapes and the cleaner and clean water has left them with an impression that, Oh, I maybe had oversimplified my view mm -hmm. of 
these people who still want that connection cool. that has been here <clears throat> since time began. Yeah. And so I used to get unnerved about that stuff. Now I embrace it, I accept it, and I realize that if we're going to have a path forward in this new society as you're talking about, me retreating back to my old circle the wagons camp is well, it it's doomed. Oh, yeah. it, it is not going to get us anywhere. It's a terminal path. It is. And at times it's uncomfortable and you get challenged to take the other path of saying, you know what, I'm going to embrace this as the reality of today. Uh, whether it's the way we communicate, the way we interact, the tribalism, the, wh whatever terms you want to put on it. If I embrace that as that is the status of where we are today and it's going to just continue and probably expand, as quick as I accept that as the way it is, it's a lot easier to deal with. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't have all the answers. And sometimes I'm sure I probably say something that maybe leaves a person with an impression of, what a knothead. Yeah. I, I well, don't do it by accident. I, I just... You just have a talent for that, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, I, I excel at being a knothead. My wife would probably agree with that. But I guess the point I'm trying to make to the listeners is, uh, I mean, they probably don't get engaged in as many of these discussions as I do, but I bet you, you know, when they're talking to the neighbor over the fence, mm -hmm. sometimes the neighbor might say, hey, I saw you carried some ducks into your garage the other day. What's up with that? Yeah. Well... Uh, I saw, you, you know, maybe the discussion goes, well, I saw that you carried some food from, uh, you had some yeah, grocery yeah. bags. Sure, yeah. And so yeah. I th the, the point is don't just go and crawl in your own little shell. Oh. Every one of us need to have these engaging discussions. Don't be, I, I am never apologetic. I'm never bashful about the fact that I hunt and fish. And I eat that stuff. I celebrate it, actually. Yeah. I value it. It's it's that identity of who I am. And I think if we try to hide it or... or uh, I, I hear people say, boy, if I talked about that, I'd get lit up at, at the water cooler at work or whatever. I don't know that I necessarily believe that. I don't believe I, it uh, either. I mean, <clears throat> you know, the new data that we have, what we do have you know, clearly indicates that um, this idea, you know, that there's a massive urbanites out there who, you know, don't know where meat comes from and things of this nature. I mean, a lot of these arguments and comments are really exaggerations. Yes. They're, they're just not true. Yep. And I do think as well that even people who are opposed to hunting, and there are, um, many of them will openly say in such a conversation when you're having with them, you know, something like, well, I suppose if you eat it, you know, it's, uh, you know, you know, <laughs> yep. so, so they've all heard it. Yeah. They yeah. will come to come to that point. And then because in their minds, um, if you're, if you're not eating it and we, you know, you have a whole podcast on, on other aspects of hunting, but if, if, if you're not eating it to them, it becomes a very frivolous, cruel and unkind thing to do right and um i think a lot of hunters actually feel that way too <laughs> that mm -hmm. if you weren't eating it you know if, if we could in today's world things had been different and we had developed somehow a bizarre culture where we managed wildlife and we only managed the wildlife to shoot them not to shoot them and consume them mm-hmm 
I mean, it would be possible to set up such a system, you know, you could still... But, I mean, think about how utterly bizarre and unnatural, you know, that would be. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, so I think people deep down, even people who are vegan, you know, realize that um, there are limits to the earth. We can't make seven and a half billion of us vegan, uh, not without stripping enormous amounts of wildlife habitat away. There is no way for any living organism to live on this planet without taking. Life demands it. We <laughs> yeah. have to have it. It's it, as simple. It's, it and is. we can't change those laws, Randy. No. Even if someone disagrees with us, we cannot. No. Sometimes it's a little bizarre because, you know, going back to your example of the, the ducks and the, the groceries, you know, I mean, you, you know, sometimes you do say funny things like, People say they don't like hunting, and then they have meat in their in their uh, cart, and you know, say you know, say something like, "Well, I think I can hear your pork roast squeal," and you know, they, <laughs> and they, they, they look at you and so on and so. On. But you know, uh, the majority of conversations that I've ever had in my life about hunting, and I've had a lot of them, um, very few have turned into sort of this classic kind of confrontation where. The other person sort of spits at you or something right. like that. I mean, there's been a very few, very, yeah. very, very few. So I think we're on much safer ground, in fact, today than probably we have been. The extreme views about hunting are out there. But I think more and more uh, the public, again, in its search for health, time in the outdoors, healthy food, knowing where their food comes from, all, for, all, for all of these reasons... I think is actually positioning hunting in a pretty good space. Yeah, I, I agree. And yeah. I think if we adapt and we embrace the tools that are out there, people say, oh, social media is going to be the end of hunting. Well, only if we let it be that way. It's, yeah. it's a very, very powerful. And it can be used in so many beneficial ways. It's just us deciding, are we going to use it beneficially or are we going to use it in a way that makes us feel good because we show some image to our group of, mm -hmm. of you know, our inner circle and we have a chuck, chuck laugh about it and know that mm, that's really not, yeah. that, that, that's not who we are. So yeah. there, there's so many possible ways forward and so many tools at our disposal. We just have to decide, are we going to engage or are we going to retreat? Right. And if we're going to retreat, well, guess what? Yeah. Wave the white flag now, and let's just say hell with it and go play golf. Yeah, I mean, we have, uh, we have enough challenges as it is with, you know, the declining recruitment and the various things that we know are realities. Uh, we certainly don't need to be assisting in uh, anything that would encourage our own demise. <laughs> no. And uh, some people will. Yeah. Um, and that's true of any movement too, Randy. There's mm -hmm. always going to be some people who will do this kind of thing. Always. But I do really sense a, I, I want to say is a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a maturity, but even some of the young hunters that I meet seem to have it. This kind of more nuanced view of it, the, the realization that we are operating within a social space, uh, that, we, that we have to communicate our values in a positive way, that almost all our values are shared with the vast majority of people on this planet at the same time. 
And that also a little bit of understanding for the people who are opposed to hunting. You know, if you have never engaged in it, Randy, and you don't know anybody whom you care for, like, admire, or love who has done it, then, my goodness, it's kind of easy to understand how someone might get the idea that that's a bad thing because right. they love their dog, they, they love seeing horses, they love, they love animals, and therefore, why would anyone want to hurt one of those? I mean, that's what they're, that's right. what they're thinking. Yeah. And I, I use an example that when I was on TV, I, every time I would show the processing of the meat out in the field, that got kicked back. And they yeah. said, we can't show that. Yeah. Well, if the largest platforms of presenting the image of who we are as a community of hunters yeah. says, we're not going to let you show meat and blood. Yeah. That, I mean, you can do it tastefully. You can... Yeah. It, it was always with the purpose of showing the audience, this is what the next step is. Yeah, yeah, sure, of course. We don't have to run a camera up in the gut cavity and blood everywhere. <laughs> we can do it from afar and show meat going into into game bags yeah. and meat coming home with us and getting... That True. always got kicked back. Yeah. So is it any surprise to us that if someone were surfing the channel, that they see no connection to the meat and to the food? Mm -hmm. When many of our platforms act like that's the part, oh, that 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 makes people uncomfortable. We yeah. can't show that part. Yeah. Yeah. I say bullshit. Yeah. I make sure every time we harvest an animal, yeah. one of the freedoms of now being on the platforms I am, yeah. you see that happening in everyone because I am, maybe I'm wrong, but I'm convinced that some of our own sideboards we put on ourselves, some of the places of discomfort we're not willing to travel create our own problems for us. And if we're not willing to travel to that point of showing food as the end product and whatever media it is, mm -hmm. we're setting ourselves up for a headache. And, and if I were to say, well, I'm not going to show that because I don't want to have someone complain that, oh, that, you know, there's blood on a game bag. You know what? I want to have that discussion mm -hmm. because as much as there's blood on that game bag, there's blood on the floor of the place where that chicken got. Sure, sure. <laughs> got, got what it, you know, yeah. process. So yeah. I, I think a lot of times we are oversensitivity. I mean, there's a balance. You don't want to be completely blatant and, and ignorant. And you don't need to the, be either. Right. But, yeah. but our oversensitivity, and, and maybe this comes from being the minority of, of the greater society, sometimes leads us down paths where the expected outcome is people are not going to associate hunting with food. Because we don't show that. It's true, but in many cases, of course, as you point out, it's the um, it's the decision made by people who run networks or run other platforms who make that decision. It's mm -hmm. not necessarily that the, the hunter wouldn't show it or isn't trying to show it. On the other hand, I do believe that, you know, there is, there is an appropriate way uh, to show this too. Um, and, you know... Um, you can miss some of the steps if you wish and still get your message across. Right. You know, uh, when you go into a, a butcher a shop and he opens the, the cooler and you see these quarters of meat <laughs> hanging up, you know, uh, un unless you're from another planet, you can, you sort of can <laughs> put one and one, one, one and one together and get two. Uh, so, you know, I do think that there is, um, uh, there is a balance because at one time, for example, in the television shows, I remember when, when they started, and of course I was highly critical of many of them for mm -hmm. a long period of time. Um, 
I know that there was a code and that one kill shot was not enough. Two yeah. was excellent, but three, if you could get it, man, yeah, really but, made really made for a great piece right. of work. Yeah. Now, obviously, you know, we didn't need that to express the reality of hunting. Um, you know, and I similarly with, with uh, processing the animal, I mean, I think the shout of somebody standing over and then at some point when the animal has been, the gut pile is to the side or something, you know, there are ways in which that can be presented because the reason those people are making the decisions on their platforms, of course, is because, you know, they get sensitive responses or responses right. from sensitive people outside. Mm-hmm. However, I totally agree with you that the that making sure that people understand what this full process of hunting is, both from the time of preparation for the hunt, the actual hunting, searching, and so on and so forth itself, the taking of the animal, the butchering of the animal, the, the move, you know, carrying the animal out, the meat out, and actually preparing it. I mean, I think that there is a, there's still a ways to go in sort of, even telling the true full story of hunting, that often gets chopped up in a 23-minute for 30-minute slot kind of thing. You know, right. you don't get this kind of thing. And this, is, this leads to, it has one really damaging aspect to it, which is it leads in some people's minds, and it has led in people's minds and in some, some of the public's mind, um, that hunting is only about the kill. Yeah. So, you know, if I was to talk to uh, a Cheyenne uh, man or woman in 1830 and I was to describe the hunt as simply the kill when the lance or the arrow went through the bison's ribs, they would think that a very strange thing. Mm-hmm. The dancing before, you know, the preparation in some cases, the painting of the ponies, the preparation of the weaponry, the scouts that were sent out to find the herds, you know, the women getting prepared for the butchering that would take place and the drying of the meat and the use of the bones and of the intestines and of the horns and of the pelts and all this kind of stuff. That is what was meant by the hunt. Right. We took that and created this problem of the kill. Yep. And so it's, um, it's really, uh, it, 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 that, that problem of the hunt is the kill was deeply embedded and deeply nourished by much of our media for a very long time. Not just the television, of course, but magazines and yeah. various other things and then home videos and so on and so forth. And, the most wonderful parts, of course, then, of the hunt, which includes the excitement of getting ready and being on the country and, mm-hmm. and the gratification you feel when you have the animal and the taking care of it and, you know, you know worrying that one of your shots may have destroyed some meat that you wish it hadn't, you know, mm-hmm. that, all these kinds of things. Um, and then the carrying it out and the, the sharing it with family and friends, you know, th- we... we, we we tended, we're getting much better now, but we really tended for almost two decades to downplay every beautiful thing about the hunt yeah. and to emphasize the things that were least beautiful in many ways about it. 
mm-hmm. including it making us look like idiots where all we did was whisper to one another constantly, <laughs> you know? I, 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 you know, God darn. I mean, I think it's like all hunters, you know, I just wonder if someone watched all this stuff, they, they'd probably come to the conclusion that all hunters like had little reedy voices like this, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and unfortunately, as I said, we're getting much better. But to yeah. your point that we often can make uh, problems for ourselves. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And I use that one when I have these discussions very often with other hunters to point out, one, we create a lot of our own problems. But two, it's a legacy we're going to be living with for a while. Yeah. Because it it existed, as you said, for the better part of two decades, yeah. that, that model. It did. But we have new platforms, new distributions, new yeah. media opportunities to use as tools to dispel and change that narrative. And it's not going to change tomorrow. We've no. been, we, we painted the prior image for too long to think that tomorrow it's going to change. Yeah. But earlier when I was talking about engaging and embracing and using social media, like in our case, it's, it's YouTube and it's mm-hmm. Instagram and it's Facebook. And we show pictures of the meat. We celebrate the meat. We celebrate the meal. We have a policy at our office that we're going to do X number of food pieces, whether they get one view or a million views. I don't care. Yeah. Because the identity of what I want to see is adding to the rest of the story. The story's not complete without the food aspect. So I use that as an example to tell people there are opportunities there are. to change what's where we see ourselves and to further it and to make it what we want it to be rather than what it has been. Yeah. So I think that is very true. And I think the, you know, some of the side phenomena that we see today, like the viewership that's coming out for shows like, you know, some of the Alaskan trappers and things Mm -hmm. of this nature, you know, there's, there's, there's also this, this back current of acceptance coming in a way that we might not have expected, where things are quite explicit, where they do the, you know, very, very, very open. So, yeah. you know, society is coming to a different place. And we, I mean, my whole career has been about trying to see where things were headed, mm-hmm. right? That's what I have tried to focus on. My research career, of course, with wildlife was different, but I've always trying to figure out the future by studying the past, but also by thinking about the broader patterns that take place in human society and asking myself, well, why should hunting be any different? You know, why is hunting going to be protected in this little bubble? And, you know, everybody's just going to walk by as though nobody notices that there's a, you know, it'd be like expecting people to walk by a tiger, you know, on the main, main street, you know, it just doesn't happen. Um, And I think, I, I really sense that we are, slowly just developing a, a, a better, a more mature uh, kind of sense of ourselves uh, with regard to all this. And I, I, obviously, I truly hope I'm right in that. Yeah. No, I, I, I agree with you 100%, Shane. You want to know the bad news? Sure. That my alarm on my phone went off about 10 minutes ago, which means we're about 10 minutes late from our next engagement. It was so, a pleasure, Randy. I uh, hate to scoot, but I have to. <laughs> I, I have to also. And folks, thanks for being here. Shane, thanks so much. I hope that uh, people go online, Google Conservation Visions, and see where you're at with Wild Harvest Initiative. Yeah. And uh, next time, we'll expand the conversation to who knows what, and maybe we'll give ourselves another half hour. I hope so. Thank you so much. You're welcome, Randy. Thanks for listening, folks. <laughs>